I'll ask you to join with me by turning in your Bibles once again to the book of Numbers, chapter 23 and 24 will be the passages we're looking at tonight. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find our text beginning on page 131. Uh, The book of Numbers is the fourth book of the Old Testament. We've been making our way through the entire book, this entire narrative written by Moses to see uh, together how the gospel of God is present and presented in the pages of this book. And how God was ever present with his people, even as they wandered through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. We're picking up in the next two chapters where Parker left off uh, two weeks ago and looking at how a, a pagan king sought to employ a pagan prophet known for sorcery to curse the people of God. Balak, the king of Moabites, felt threatened by the Israelites. He had received word about their recent victories in battle, and their sheer proximity to his kingdom led him to fear them. He had seen how they defeated uh, the Canaanite king named Arad, and Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. And as he, he started to color in the map of his mind, if you will, he had gotten a sneaking suspicion. Uh, that they may be coming for him next, for his land, and for his kingdom as well. But Balak knew a guy, or at least he had heard of a guy, a seer, a, a prophet for hire named Balaam, who if given the right price, would use these cultic practices, would would use divination and and sorcery to curse people. And his track record was pretty good. The people who Balaam blessed, well, they were blessed. And the people that Balaam cursed, well, they didn't seem to fare as well. And so desperate times call for desperate measures. And Balak sent men to offer Balaam the world if he would simply come And curse the people of God. At the end of chapter 22, Balak took Balaam up to a high place called Bamoth Baal. And from there, they could catch a glimpse of the Israelites' encampment. That's where we're going to pick up tonight, the gospel in the wilderness. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 23. And we'll read through verse 12. And then we'll make our way along through the rest of the text as we go through the evening. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word for us tonight. Please remember, it's perfect, it's poignant, it's personal. This is God's word for us tonight. Let's give our attention to the reading of it. And Balaam said to Balak, build for me here seven altars, prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said, and Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offerings and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me. And whatever he shows me, I will tell you. And he went to a bare height. And God met Balaam. And Balaam said to him, I've arranged the seven altars. I've offered on each an altar a bull and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him. And behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, 
from Aram, Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. And Balak said to uh, to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you've done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, Must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, as I stand on this stage tonight, a huge sinner who has an even greater Savior, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask that you would choose to strike once again a straight blow with a very crooked stick. Would you make a strategic strike to our hearts? Would you shatter our idols and our misconceptions and then rebuild us into your image? And Father, as I seek to ask each and every time, speak, O Lord, for your servants listen in Christ's name. Amen. I have a friend with whom I grew up. We're now friends on social media. Since the time I knew him in high school, he's punted his faith. We grew up going to church together. He now lives in open rebellion against, and he mocks God, and he, he mocks faith regularly. I bet as many of us have friends like that. I wonder if your friends do what my friend did. You see, my friend Drew uh, had a person in his life with whom he cared about deeply. And this individual was in a very grave situation. In fact, it was a life-threatening situation. And one morning on a social media page, my friend posted, Those of you who pray and believe in God, if you don't mind, say a prayer for my friend. Now, I am not making light of my friend, nor of his deep hurt and fear and pain, nor the suffering of the person about whom he cared so much. An observation of human behavior, however, and it's fascinating to me, at its very base level, my friend was attempting to manipulate a God he didn't believe in to bring about an end which he desired. He wanted desired results, but he had no desire for a relationship with the God he was asking others from whom to ask for help. That's what Balak is doing as well. As he surveyed his kingdom, as he felt the external pressure of the ever-encroaching presence of the people of Israel, he wanted to manipulate a God he didn't believe in to bring about his own desired ends. He hired Balaam to do whatever it would take to have God change course and curse the people of Israel. Our text began with a politician and the prophet at 
Bamoth Ba'el. It's, it's what elsewhere in Scripture is identified as a high place. It's a place of pagan worship. And the unbelieving prophet, Balaam, tells the unbelieving king, Balak, to build seven altars and on them to sacrifice seven bulls and seven rams as an appeasement to the God he didn't believe in. In the hopes that it might bring about the desired result, a curse being brought on the Israelite people. So Balaam leaves Balak at the altar and he goes to discern what this God will do. And verse 4 says that God met him there and told him what to say. And it's the first of four messages or, or four oracles that God will give to Balaam. And he instructs the unbelieving prophet to go and deliver the message word for word to this unbelieving king. And as we consider these oracles together tonight, it may be helpful to notice that the first three oracles are in a bucket and they are all forthtelling, talking about what is true. The last one in another bucket is foretelling, talking about what is to come. So what do these oracles say? The first one you can find the main point of the passage in verses 8 and 10 of chapter 23. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord Yahweh has not denounced? Who can count the dust of Jacob or, or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Translation? Um, Balak, God has blessed these people. I mean, really, really bless them. It would be awesome to be counted among their number. That's not exactly what Balak asked for. It's nowhere close. So it's like he goes back and he checks his Amazon history to make sure he didn't click the wrong button. Nope, I ordered a cursing. Balaam, you delivered a blessing for the Israelites. The unbelieving prophet responds to this unbelieving king. I don't determine what's true or not true. Don't shoot the messenger. This is not what Balak wanted to hear. So he does what most of us do after rejection like this. We come at it from another angle. Let's try it another way. Look at verse 13. And Balak said to him, Balaam, please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall only see a fraction of them and shall not see them all. Then curse them for me from there. Now, Balak may have had a couple of reasons for doing this. Perhaps he's thinking that Balaam was intimidated by the size of the Israelite encampment. Maybe a smaller sample size so as not to get overwhelmed. So he takes Balaam to another high place where he can only see a fraction of them. That may be one reason. Or perhaps Balak is thinking a little cursing is better than no cursing. If a devastated Israel is not in the cards, then maybe a diminished Israel would perhaps suffice. So just curse a fraction of them. I'll take care of the rest. And again, seven altars were built at this new high place and more sacrifices were offered. And again, Balaam went away to discern what this God might do. And again, 
we're told that Yahweh met the unbelieving prophet with a different message for the unbelieving king. And the second message God answers by describing his character. In other words, hey, Balaam, go back and tell Balak with whom he's attempting to deal. And here's four things I want you to tell him. Number one, this God you're trifling with, I do not change. Look at verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. God's immutable. Can't move him. He doesn't change. Secondly, I'm a God who dwells with these people you're trying to curse. Look at the second part of verse 21. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. In this passage, God God is revealing, if you will, the Emmanuel principle. Balak, if you move against the people of God, it's not as if God's far away from them and will get word and have to come running. No, Balak, their God is encamped with them. And if that's not enough, Balak, the third thing you need to know, their God is a God of battle, ready to defend them. Look at verse 22. Pardon me. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. It's kind of a weird word picture, isn't it? And yet, to the people in the ancient Near East, that was a common illustration. It described a king who was ready to gore his enemies. Balak, one more thing. Verse 23. Their God cannot be manipulated. There is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. For what purpose was Balaam hired (laughs) to practice sorcery and divination and to bring about a curse? And God is saying, this stuff you're pulling, it has no effect on me. You go back. You tell Balak that. So Balaam goes back. And again, he gives him a verbatim word of the Lord. And Balak is so frustrated. Look at verse 25. Balak said to Balaam, do not curse them at all and do not bless them. In other words, just stop. You're messing the whole thing up. You can't do anything right. So let's just try nothing Because no matter what you do, Balaam, it always ends up a blessing. And Balaam responds, I told you, all that the Lord says, I must do. So Balak steps back, scratches his head, starts to think. And it's as if he decides, maybe place alone is not the issue. Maybe it's place and persistence. Hey, Balaam, let's run it back. Do it again. Let's just wear God down. So he takes Balaam to yet another high place overlooking the desert. He repeats the same process of building more altars, offering more sacrifices. And once again, Balaam goes out to see what this God will do. But did you notice this time? We didn't actually hear it through the first passages, but Moses makes sure to say 
Balaam does something different this time. He doesn't go looking for omens. But instead, he simply goes up and he looks intently at the people of God. Tribe by tribe. He's taking it all in. And according to chapter 24, verse 2, God's spirit came upon him. And again, God spoke clearly and deliberately with his third message. In the first oracle, he told Balak, Yahweh has blessed his people. In the second oracle, he revealed to Balak the character of the one doing the blessing. And now, in this third, fourth telling oracle, he hears from God and tells Balak what God does to those who move against his people. Here's how it is. Verse 9. Blessed are those who bless you. And cursed are those who curse you. Now, if you're an Israelite, if you could be a fly on the wall, if you could have heard Balaam telling Balak this, it would have been a huge encouragement to you. Because you would have gone back, you would have thought about, and it's what Moses is trying to convey to them in writing this down for them in the book of Numbers, It's reminding them of God's original promise to Abram back in Genesis chapter 12. In verse 3 of chapter 12, God says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. What God said he was going to do way back then, he is now reminding them in their present existential circumstances, that promise still Holds true. He continues to not only bless the Israelites, but there are actual blessings for those who bless the Israelites. Do you notice that? And they look, conversely, there are curses for those who curse the Israelites. You may want to step back. This God with whom you're trifling, this is the God who does these things. We're going to go to the fourth message in just a moment, but for a moment, what should we make of this? As we hear God reveal these things about himself to a pagan prophet and a pagan king, what about us? The first thing I would point out is that God's sovereignty should either strike great fear into you or give you a great sense of peace. And the determining factor is whether or not you are one of God's people. Remember, this unbelieving prophet and unbelieving king are attempting to manipulate a God they don't believe in to bring about a desired end, and God will have none of it. In fact... In these chapters, we see a little bit of God's sense of humor. Look at verse 11 of chapter 24. Balak is mad at this point. And he looks at Balaam and he says, Balaam, flee to your own place. I said, I will certainly honor you, but the Lord has held you back from honor. Balak is so mad that he's telling Balaam to forget the whole thing. You're going away empty-handed. There's no reward. There's no per diem. 
There's no money for mileage. You get nothing. He had been promised the world. And now he will leave with nothing. So Balaam, whose sole purpose of going through with this was to get rich, goes away empty-handed. And you may be saying, well, how is that an exhibition of God's sovereignty? I'll tell you. Balaam was a pawn in the purposes of God, and he has absolutely nothing to show for it. And Balak, who wanted to make sure his kingdom was protected, actually, through his actions, has brought about its demise. He sealed their fate because he sought to curse the people of God. And with the fall of the Moabites, the Israelites will once again be blessed by God. It is a frightening thing to go up against a God whose will cannot be thwarted. But if you are one of his people, if you have been chosen by God and he has set his love upon you, there is a great blessing and a great comfort in God's sovereignty. If you wanted a historical picture of answer one to the Heidelberg Catechism, here it is. As a powerful king looked down and wanted to destroy the people of God, the Israelites were shown yet again. Your life is not your own, but you belong both body and soul in life and in death to a faithful God. And he preserves you in such a way as not a hair can fall from your head apart from the will of God. Indeed, all things, even the actions of an unbelieving king and an unbelieving prophet, must work together for the salvation of God's people. If you are numbered among God's people, That should be a great comfort to you. If you're still unbelieving, it should strike fear to your very core. Your rebellion and your unbelief will do nothing to thwart the perfect will of our loving God. However, we would be remiss if we felt as if seeking to manipulate God was simply the action of professing unbelievers. We can be guilty of it as well. Story is told of a young boy who wanted a new bicycle for Christmas. His best friend had a new bicycle. He wanted one too. So he went to his mom to beg for a new bike. Timmy has a new bike. I need a new bike too. And his mom decided to use this as a teaching moment and said, well, son, why don't you pray about it? Why don't you ask God for a new bicycle? Boy said, okay, I will. He goes to his room. Pulls out a piece of paper and a crayon, and he writes, Dear God, I have been very good. I need a new bicycle. He pauses, he wraps up the piece of paper, and he throws it to the ground. He starts over. Dear God, I have tried to be very good, and I need, he stops, Rose's his brow, rips up the piece of paper, throws it down, starts one more time. Dear God, I meant to be very good. Once again, he stops, exasperated, throws the sheet away, grabs his coat, goes outside, walks down the street to a church on the corner, goes into the sanctuary, sits in the dim lit room. And as he sits, he just thinks, 
He gets up as he's leaving and he walks through the vestibule and there he sees the Christmas nativity set up on the table. And he grabs one of the nativity pieces and the young boy puts it in his pocket and he runs home and he climbs to the top of his room, and go, or top of the stairs, goes to his room, goes in, locks the doors, pulls out one last piece of paper and writes, Hey Jesus, I got your mama. If you want to see her again, I need a new bicycle. Now, we may not go to that extreme, but even as believers, we can manipulate and do some extremely, extremely manipulative things in our negotiations with God. We'll pray. We'll say we'll increase our devotion to Bible reading if. We'll say we'll be more regular in church attendance. If we'll acknowledge our shortfalls in praying and vow to do better. If. Or I've seen this as well in my years as a pastor. We'll go negative. We'll threaten to leave the church if God's will won't line up with our own. We will pray, and some of us convincing ourselves that it's earnest, asking God to make his will known in regards to an issue of some type. But if his answer doesn't go the way we want it to go, if his revealed will doesn't match our expressed will, we'll leave. Maybe we won't leave. Maybe we won't hold nativity pieces hostage, but we'll withhold, say, things like our tithes and offerings. We'll even tell people, I will not give another cent if. Tell me the difference. Tell me the difference between that and the petulant child and the joke. For one thing, it's as if we really believe God needs our money in the first place, right? Guess what? He doesn't. He's the one who gave it to you in the first place. He can take it away or simply give it to others who will choose to give back to him. God is not moved by the rising or the falling of the stock market. Our methods may be more sophisticated than stealing statues, but the meaning is still the same. It's a battle of wills between a God who is sovereign and those who will say in actions, my kingdom, my will be done. Dear friends, you need to take note and remember this. First, we're not above this type of manipulation. And secondly, God doesn't negotiate when it comes to his will. He doesn't have to. You and I cannot stop it. We cannot thwart it. We cannot alter it. All things, and I mean all things, even the actions of unbelieving kings and unbelieving prophets work together for the salvation of God's people. So how does God accomplish the salvation of his people? I'm glad you asked. It's there in the fourth oracle. And it's Balaam foretelling what's going to happen. Before he tucks his tail and heads back home, Balaam has one more message for Balak. It is about what is going to happen to him and to all the enemies of God. Look at chapter 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. 
and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. God's blessing for his people were not just the promises of yesterday to Abraham and today to those encamped on the edge of the promised land. It had a future promise just as secure. Balaam, the unbelieving prophet, tells the unbelieving king, a star of Jacob, a scepter out of Israel will come and have dominion and will destroy the enemies of God. What is that about? Matthew tells us some 1,400 years later, Matthew records that unbelieving kings or unbelieving seers or wise men from the east come to Israel following a star and looking for the king. This is a prophecy about Christmas. Our friend Ligon Duncan points out regarding this prophecy, can you imagine being given the privilege of announcing the star that comes out of Jacob and the scepter out of Judah? Moses doesn't make that prophecy. Joshua doesn't make that prophecy. Nathan doesn't make that prophecy. Balaam, this unbelieving prophet who in the end does not trust this God who has revealed himself and spoken through this prophet. Balaam doesn't believe and trust in this God for his salvation. He even said it back in his first oracle. Let me die the death of the upright. Let my end be like his. And yet he never submits himself to God's revealed will. How sad. Proximity to promises does not make one the receiver of them. You can be around the gospel an awful lot and never accept it to be true for you. May we not be found to be like Balaam. You want the gospel in numbers? Here it is. The foretelling of this coming Messiah for God's people who will accomplish salvation for them. God is working all things together to accomplish this. In this passage, God is foretelling what he reveals even in greater detail later. That there's one coming, a Messiah, a promised Savior of God who will ascend to a throne and whose kingdom will never end. And God's promise to his people have never failed, are not failing, and will not fail because God is sovereign and faithful. There is no battle of wills. There's just his will and it will be done. I laughed this week when I took notice of the timing of this passage. It's one week after Halloween. Maybe like me, you get a little irked that retailers seem to go straight from Halloween to Christmas. But I look at this passage, and it's as if God does the same thing. You have Balaam using divination and sorcery, trying to bring about curses, some kind of trick. God reveals a treat for his people. My blessings are true for you. They do not fail. And then God lays out the message of Christmas. That a Messiah is coming. A star from Jacob and the coming of a king. And maybe like me, you think, 
where's Thanksgiving? (laughs) Great question. But that's up to us, isn't it? In this battle of wills, where God's sovereignty prevails, as it always does, is that what wells up in you? Thanksgiving. I pray that it is. Let's pray. Father, what comfort we can have if we will accept your promises is true and your word to be without error and that we will take to heart the fact that you bless your people and that no promise that you have ever made to your people has failed because you who promised is faithful and every promise that you have ever made is yes and amen and true and secure in Christ Jesus. And even the effects of those promises that we, will, uh, that we will see tangibly one day, someday, they're just as true for us even now. And in that, no matter what happens in this world, you give us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Not a hair can fall from our head apart from your sovereign will. And you love us even more than we love ourselves because you were willing to give up everything for us, including your son. And he bore the penalty for our sin and our rebellion on that cross outside of Jerusalem. And all the blessings that were his, he has given to us. And we are the inheritance of Christ, blessed by you. And when you look at us, you delight and you sing over us. Oh, praise be to you, God. May we trust in your sovereignty and delight in you. For you alone are worthy of it. How great is our God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.